We had a crawling baby making a break for it. Took those words very seriously. He's like, I'm out. He said, he said release the children. And he took it literally. I appreciate that kind of uh, initiative. Hey, good morning, everybody. And I, I think we're within the statute of limitations. I could still say Happy New Year. I don't know what the rule is. I feel like if we're still in the single digits of the days of January, we can still say Happy New Year and... If we have Christmas decorations still in our homes or in our churches, we can definitely still say Happy New Year. We may even get to, uh, you know, Valentine's Day with Christmas decorations. It's possible. Well, good morning, everybody online in TV land. It's great to be with you guys. I hope you're really enjoying these first few days of the new year. There's always kind of a fun energy around the new year, even though I was in bed by like 10 and missed, you know, all of the actual celebrations that happened in the new turn of the new year. But just really thinking about, you know, these annual questions, there's sort of a natural marker around the new year that allows us to think about something differently. And with that, I want you to mark your calendars because February 12th, is a very important day in the calendar uh, for Life Covenant Church because that's Super Bowl Sunday. And that's going to be happening here in our building. We will be watching whatever lucky contestants will be on the screen. And we may or may not be roasting another pig in celebration of this event. So potluck's going to happen For those of you at home wondering, how much time am I going to spend at church this year? It's so far away. It's so cold outside. It might rain. Come on February 12th. We'd love to see you. I have a feeling we'll see some long-lost friends that day. It usually happens when we roast things. Uh, Something has to do with that. So anyway, that's happening. I want you to mark your calendars. We didn't make the announcements uh, with that. That was a late-breaking piece of news. Very exciting. But with the, excuse me, with the new year, not only do we get to celebrate the Super Bowl, we think about maybe this annual kind of checkup. That's what we like to do first Sunday of every year, is to do our annual checkup. I've talked to a lot of people who are thinking in the new year, like, oh, maybe I really should go back and see my doctor. Maybe I should get that colonoscopy that I've been putting off all these years. You get to a certain age, and these are the conversations that you have with people. Some of you are smiling and looking away. I lost a lot of eye contact just now because I realized, you know, you're thinking these same thoughts. And so going to the doctor, having New Year's resolutions, thinking about uh, doing things differently, perhaps better, making some enhancements to our lives, thinking preventatively about the future. How do I get ahead of things so that as you know, challenges emerge, I can be prepared for them as best as I'm able. And so we want to think spiritually about those same thoughts. How can I think preventatively? How can I think preparationally about my faith? How can I be ready in my faith walk and in my life as a spiritual person, as part of the body of Christ, as I move into 2023, right? And I'd like for you to just consider thinking of including transformational, formational language into your New Year's resolutions. Hopefully that you will keep uh, past next week, which I think is sort of when those things typically fall off, right? I love this phrase that the founders of the Covenant Church, our denomination, uh, had as part of their regular conversation. The Covenanters, as they were known in the early days, or mission friends, were really a bunch of Christian people, not theologically trained. They weren't professional pastors and ministers and missionaries, though some of them became those things. Most of them were just good, hardy, immigrant folks who wanted to gather in each other's homes so that they could have Christian conversation, community, and support, and start to live out the Christian community and mission right where they are, many of whom who found themselves in the Midwest or the Great Lakes region of this country like 100 years ago. And they didn't have 
theological language. They just sort of said, you know, what's really important is that we really keep each other accountable and encourage one another. So they came up with this simple phrase that the covenant maintains to this date, and they say to each other, how goes your walk? How goes your walk? How is your walk with the Lord going, they would ask. How goes your walk? And this just became part of their regular conversation with each other. How goes your walk with the Lord? And it was just a way of saying, hey, let's have a conversation about these things. Let's make it normal and natural, part of everyday conversation as followers of Christ. Not something that we're intruding upon into some kind of private part of our lives, like, oh, we're not going to talk about that. You know, that's secret knowledge, or that's too intimate to share. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, we ask each other all kinds of things. We just talked about colonoscopies. I can't think of anything more intimate and more detailed. And so all of a sudden, why can't I ask the question, how goes your walk with the Lord? Right? Making that a normal, natural part of the conversation. So that's kind of what we're up to today thinking about uh, what it means to be healthy as followers of Christ. What does it mean to be whole and healthy and ready uh, to do what the Lord calls us to do? Let's pray together as we enter into his word. God, thanks so much that you give us these natural markers and that you knew we would need these moments of change and transition and newness to spur us to think about new habits, to continue really healthy habits that are working for us, to think about ending bad habits, and to start uh, becoming curious about possibilities. And so, God, we pray we would take advantage uh, of this season and of this time, and that we would include our thoughts about our personal walk with you, our connection to community, and our sense of call as followers of Jesus uh, into these communities and into the world that we live in uh, so that we can be as intentional as possible and be ready for what it is that you have before us individually and collectively here in 2023. So we give you thanks, Lord, for every part of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. amen. Hey, so we're going to look at Romans chapter 12. This is a great little, uh, I'm going to call it a treatise, from the Apostle Paul, because Romans is sort of like, uh, if Apostle Paul could be summarized in any one letter, I would say Romans is it. It's dense, it's thick, it's full of all of these important thoughts that Paul had for the church in Rome. And in this chapter, we're going to kind of go on a little bit of a journey as he starts to ask these kind of core questions, core questions about the faith. So we'll just kind of read it with that in mind. Just the first couple of verses says, therefore, and we're not going to get very far. I want you to pause for a second. When he says, therefore, it means in light of everything I've just told you. So you have to read chapters 1 to 11 to kind of understand what he's saying in chapter 12, right? But we're jumping into the middle here, and he says, in light of everything that Paul has said, about God, about sin, about the gospel and the church in chapters 1 to 11, he's saying this is how you should live if you believe in anything I've just talked about. Okay, So he's kind of getting down to where the rubber meets the road, and he offers us this little summary in the first two verses of chapter 12. So therefore, in light of all that stuff, He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And we'll pause there for a moment, right? This passage, if you've been around the church for very long, you've heard this word before. This is a very famous passage full of inspiration. Yes, I want to offer my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true and proper worship and not conforming and the renewing of the mind. So, I mean, this is going to sound a little bit trite, but the first thing that we should consider as we think about our spiritual well-being is how do I put Jesus first? 
How do I, in very practical ways, Paul is asserting, with all of this belief that I have and all of this understanding that I've accumulated, how do I put Jesus first in very practical ways in my life? And if you believe any of this, he says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. And this is language that maybe around Christianity, we hear, we go, yeah, living sacrifice, right? That feels like a retreat theme that I've been to at some point in my life. But this was deliberately very paradoxical. If I were to hang out with one of my Jewish rabbi buddies uh, and friends and said, hey, Jesus calls us to be a living sacrifice, they would make the strangest face at me and be like, what in the world is a living sacrifice? Deliberately paradoxical because, you see, everywhere else in the Bible, a sacrifice is what? Something that you kill right? It's dead. It literally means killing or death, right? Sacrifice. I'm sacrificing something. Something is dying so that something else may continue. That's sort of the concept of the sacrifice, and it's usually pretty gnarly, right? So it's deliberately paradoxical. So the Christian life is both like and unlike the old sacrifices or the sacrifices uh, that we consider uh, traditional, right? So I just want to keep, just for a second, one way that it's not like the old ones is that they're bloody. The old sacrifices always required bloodshed, right? That was the whole purpose of killing the animal, was that blood would be spilt as a way of atonement, as a way of covering over someone's mistakes and someone's sins. So I am somehow atoning for, making up for, offering sacrifice blood on behalf of sin. And now we have to remember that Christian life and Christian living is not in and of itself a pathway to atonement. Now this sounds really nerdy, but at the end of the day, it's really important because I think we get caught up in this really easily in our kind of comfortability of the Christian life. Living the Christian life, putting Jesus first, serving, giving, loving, doing, being, are not pathways to atonement or forgiveness. You do not become more forgiven by doing the things. Are you with me? That's not the way the gospel operates. If we get any portion of this, a kind of meritocracy, into our minds, then I think we can get twisted when things go bad. This really basic kind of, you know, situation is like, hey, I'm living the Christian life, I'm doing all the things, I'm checking all the boxes, as they were if you're into lists, checking all the boxes, right, I'm doing all the stuff, and then something bad happens to me. And whether we think of ourselves as super Christians or not, some part of us, if we're human, says, hey, what's up with that God? I was doing all the things, aren't you supposed to have my back? Because there's this weird presupposition in the back of our heads tied to the old sacrifices that if I do all the things, God is going to somehow protect me from the harm that comes to us as part of life in general. And that when problems come, the questions and the existential crises come because we have this idea of thinking that we're going to be okay if we just do all the things. And friends, I'm telling you, the Christian life doesn't say that at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Doing all the things is not a path to atonement. That's an understanding of the old sacrifice that I think is a carryover for us. We would love for it to be that way if the Christian life were that easy. If we could just do all the things and life would be okay, if I could just put in all the coins and put in all the little chips and all the ways, I'm going to just kind of make all of my spiritual deposits into the kingdom of God and I get out of it what I'm hoping for, what I'm wanting, having my prayers be answered, surviving and being protected from the sufferings of others, then man, the Christian life would be awesome and I think the church would be pretty full if we had those kinds of answers and if it worked that way. But it's a little more complicated than that. 
The other way that the Christian life is not like the old sacrifice is that it's, the old sacrifices were brief. They were over, right? When I go buy a pig at the ranch, you know, that pig is not around very long. We pick the pig, they mark the pig, they put a little name and number on it, and that pig is out and in a cooler within 30 minutes. The sacrifice is fast. It's quick and it's done and it's over. There's no need to prolong any kind of suffering. It all happens in a very fast and and very permanent kind of way. But the problem with the living sacrifice is that it's always crawling off the altar. The living sacrifice. That means something is happening within us that is ongoing. We are living a kind of sacrificial way that is actually like the old way. It's like it because we're putting to death within ourselves the idea that we are in control of our lives. I think that in its essence is what it means to be a living sacrifice. I put to death my rights and my authority to live as I choose. And I put God... Jesus is Lord of my life and I begin to shape and change the way that I live in accordance with what he calls me to. And I live in the surrender of that. That's what it means, I think, to be a living sacrifice. What a challenging concept. I had a powerful conversation, series of conversations with a patient over the last several weeks and uh, this was the question of the day for this person. She had lived a good life. She was a passionate follower of Jesus. She had gone to church. She had served. She used her gifts. She was teaching 7th and 8th graders. Is there no greater sacrifice of human spirit than teaching 7th and 8th graders mathematics, Right? And she took it very seriously. She was one of those teachers that worked in underprivileged areas and therefore sacrificed her time and her energy and her money and her resources caring for these students who wouldn't have made it without her specific intervention in their lives, taking very seriously their well-being. How are you doing? Do you need clothing? Do you need food? What kind of support do you need? She cared about them desperately and she would come alive in our conversations as she thought about her students and yet here she was stricken with a very unusual disorder that had her experiencing stroke after stroke after stroke. Blood vessels were literally just exploding in her head over the last three years little by little, sort of chipping away at her vitality, her ability to live the life that she had been living for many years. And her question to me over and over again, almost at the beginning of every session was, how can I believe in God if he's allowing these things to happen to me? And she asked those very basic questions. If God is good and if God loves me, why would he do this to me? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. And she wrestled and she wrestled and she wrestled. And one of the last conversations that we had before she was finally discharged to acute rehab. And we had this really profound sort of breakthrough and I felt this moment and I don't normally do this, but we had developed a rapport and she was another follower of Christ and she was asking these really challenging questions. And I remember looking at her and saying, gosh, you know, I wonder if it's that life is not fair. And that maybe as Christians, we think that it should be. And she's like, oh, chaplain, Why'd you have to do that to me? I said, yeah, my kid had a teacher in the fourth grade that said the fair is where you get cotton candy, right? The fair is not life. And she said, yeah, I've said that to my students many, many times. 
there are no guarantees in this life. Sometimes bad things do happen. And lessons that she had imparted to her students just started rattling around in her mind. And the questions of why started to drift a little bit. And she sat there and she says, this is a really important conversation. I think I'm going to sit down and write about this and have a moment. Friends, if we believe that the Christian life in putting Jesus first is somehow a way of punching our ticket to an easier life or a life without suffering, then I think we've misunderstood the gospel. And I said, part of our conversation, if, if suffering is not something that happens to us as punishment, if life's hardships are not something that happened to us because we've done something wrong or that God is somehow angry at us or that we haven't done enough, then maybe there's another reason why God might allow suffering and that it's an opportunity for us to draw closer to him. It's a space where we can rely on him more uniquely where we can learn to find reservoirs of faith and belief and trust in the midst of life's impossible uncertainties so that whatever the outcome might be or will be, we can hold on to ourselves and hold on to Jesus and say, as long as you're with me, Jesus, I believe that I'll be okay even if okay means diminished, even if okay means better. Whatever the outcome, Lord, if you are somehow with me and near me, if I'm able to find a way to put Jesus first, then and only then will any of this have meaning, purpose, and value. Right? It's a simple but profound reframing of reality that I think we all need to struggle and strain toward with a proper understanding of maybe what Paul is keying us into when he calls us to being living sacrifices. Living sacrifices that sometimes like to crawl off the altar. In reality, sacrifice is always done in service of something, right? Sacrifice doesn't happen in a vacuum. Sacrifice happens in a very specific context, both in the old way and in the new way that we're looking at today. The reality is, if we stop and really consider it for a moment, we are always serving something, right? And that service of something is always exacting some kind of sacrifice from us all the time. Right? And it doesn't always have to be something good. These are all flowery terms, but it could be job, right? We're serving our jobs. That job is exacting a, a cost upon us for the doing of that job. It might be the pursuit of money, if that's something that we have set before us. Relationships are things that we work in the service of, not always. Um, in this really natural sort of give-and-take kind of way. Sometimes those relationships exact a great price from us. Parenting, popularity, our hobbies, are even areas where we serve our hobbies and we are sacrificing on behalf of the things that we enjoy doing. We cannot kid ourselves, friends. If we are a living sacrifice, we are already doing that for something whether we take this language and we apply it to our faith or not, we are living sacrifices for something, right? And it's not always for Jesus. And so if Paul is saying we are responding to the gospel message of Jesus, living sacrifices, living as a servant for him, he gives us this ongoing picture of what that might look like in the next few verses. Pick it up in verse 3. Check this out. It says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. 
For each, just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Romans 12, 3 to 8. And on and on goes the list, right? It's not an exhaustive list. You're not meant to find yourself exclusively in this list. There are many lists like it all throughout the scriptures. It's simply a way of sort of peaking our interest and in getting us to think about the importance of serving joyfully. Whatever it is that you're called to, serve joyfully, right? And maybe there's a challenge inside of us. I love these two words that, that kind of pop out to us in verse 6. Each and different. Every single one of us has been given a supernatural, God-given ability. And it's not flashy all the time, right? So don't think of yourself as like a superhero in that sense, right? But you have been given a natural ability to bless other people in a very specific way, sometimes multiple ways. There's not only one gift given to each person, but everybody gets at least one. So there's no such thing as what we might call an unemployed Christian, right? Every single one of us has been given a divinely ordained gift in accordance with our faith, right? And each gift is different and unique. Sometimes there's overlap in our gifts, right? But in general, everybody has a unique gift mix that makes them unique and special, right? In chaplaincy, we talk about this idea of being the instrument that we bring into the room. We don't get to bring tools. We don't get to bring special equipment, you know, into the room. We are the thing we bring into the room, And every single one of us is different. Every chaplain is unique. Every person is unique, right? We're like snowflakes. Every single one of us is unique. And the reality of that is you have the ability to touch somebody's life in a way that no one else on planet Earth has the capacity or opportunity and, dare I say, responsibility to shape in another person's life. You are uniquely enabled to do something in the lives of those around you. And this might be the perfect opportunity to start thinking about who are the people that God has placed in my life whether those people are right here in the room on church, at church on Sunday, whether those folks are in my small group, whether those people are at my work, whether that it's a casual relationship, a neighbor, a friend, somebody that God just sort of keeps putting on your mind, putting on your mind. God has placed you uniquely in your life, in different seasons of your life, to bless and minister to other people in a way that nobody else can. And if that feels like kind of like an awesome responsibility, then I would say, yes, it is. Not in a crushing way, I hope, but in a way that makes you think every day when you wake up, your day is full of opportunities that God has placed into your life for you to dispense the gifts of the Spirit that He's given you. Again, not in flashy, fantastical ways, always, but really meaningful and significant ways. Right? There's two aspects of these gifts that I just want to tease out really briefly, just to challenge us, because I think we live in a highly privatized Christian world. Right? 
that my Christianity is somehow something that I've been taught to hold within myself or within the intimacy of my close, close relationships, when in fact it's something that I think we need to do more communally uh, and learn how to do more communally in specific ways. One, I cannot renew my mind. That's what it says in the first couple of verses here. I cannot be transformed by the renewing of my mind without active help from other people. And you think about this way down to its simplest terms. I cannot grow and renew my mind without the active involvement of other followers of Jesus. Everything I know, I must be taught. Everything I learn, I must be shown. Right? Every skill that we have, we had to learn from somewhere, right? Whether it's swinging a hammer or walking, we have to learn these nuanced skills for the transforming and the renewing of our minds by learning it from somebody, right? Somewhere along the way. I cannot understand scripture without dialogue. I cannot live the life of a disciple without community, nurture, and accountability. I cannot discern my own spiritual blind spots without other people lovingly challenging my view of myself and in the world that I live in. Right? It's so mission critical that we understand who we truly are even if we're unwilling to see that for ourselves. We absolutely have to have other people. We cannot, as Paul puts it in verse 3, think of ourselves more highly than we ought outside of community connection to other people. Right? Simple, yet profoundly difficult at times. Two, I must participate in the local church to help other people grow. This is not to say that our gifts and our abilities can't be used outside the context of the church. I'm a huge advocate of living our abilities and our capacities and our God-given gifts in other contexts. Absolutely. You should absolutely do these things. But we can say very clearly from Scripture, this passage and others, that if we have been given a gift, and that's a God-ordained gift, then that gift's primary purpose is for the development and enhancement of the body of Christ in the local church and in the kingdom of God. So we must challenge these notions that the church is some place that I am not operative or that I am not needed. Would that make your life much easier? Absolutely. Absolutely. I 1,000% agree with that. Would not being part of a local church and doing life with all these different people and having to deal with other people's stuff and stepping on each other's toes and figuring out the complexity of living in diverse community? Absolutely. Your life would be so much easier if you just hung out with people that were like you and that you liked and that liked you. Absolutely. 1,000%. I can say that unabashedly as a pastor, right? looking at all of you and knowing you as I do, my life would be so much easier if I just hung out with a bunch of Korean-American 49er fans who love barbecue as much as I do. That would make my life so much easier. But that's not what we're called to, right? That's not the life that we're into. We want something more. We want to see the church. We want to see it grow outside We want to see the kingdom of God advanced. In order to do that, we need to move into complexity and nuance. We need to move into the gray and start getting comfortable in those kinds of tensions. Living with other people who think and feel and even believe differently than we do is a challenging and necessary part of living the Christian life that Paul is describing. And in the short time, I just want to get to this last piece because this last part is, is messy and complicated and it's designed that way, right? This last part of the chapter, verses 9 to 21, feels scattered. It's all over the place. It's one of these portions of Scripture that feels like Paul is just, you know, vomiting out information. He's just like rattling things off, 
None of it seems connected. It feels very disjointed to our Western European mindsets. This feels very difficult to follow because it's nonlinear, right? What's the point, Paul? What are you trying to say, right? And he's very broad and very, very um, uh, expansive in what he's describing as he talks about this idea of loving well. We'll put this broad kind of label on it, this idea of sincerity of love. And I think there is a little bit of a flow here when we think about living sacrifices, we think about serving in community. Now we're talking about learning how to love each other and be loved in this dynamic, diverse, fluid, very stressful sort of space that described the first century church in Rome and many of the first century churches as well as the church today as we're trying to live it. What we see here is the super nerdy thing called a paranesis. Paranesis, don't try to spell it. There are lots of vowels inside this word. Paranesis <laughs> is an ancient style of writing, right? This is an ancient style of writing. There are three characteristics of it, right? One, it's usually for moral exhortation. Paul is trying to make a point by drawing on a broad spectrum of ideas and understandings bound up within the scriptures, bound up within culture, using language that we all understand to make some kind of moral exhortation, dependent heavily on tradition, borrowed language widely for effect and authority, and is loosely structured, which means it's absent of sort of the linear kind of like A plus B equals C kind of language that we would love to have, right? So it's very foreign to us, which is why when we read this and we try to create structure where no structure exists, we can, we can cause ourselves a lot of headaches. And we can miss out on the broader point of what Paul is describing here, all right? So let's read it together, kind of with this paranesis idea in mind, right? Picking up in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not become, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you read that, and you're looking at all the things, and you're taking notes, and you're an outliner, and you're trying to come up with Roman numerals and little dots and, and ways, and you're looking at that and going, that makes zero sense to me. And maybe that's the way he wants it. If we look at a paranesis, we say, what is the moral imperative? What is bound up in all of this? What unites this entire story? This is just a picture of all these different connections all of these different relationships and situations that we might find ourselves in, right? We read any of those and go, yeah, I've, I've needed to do most of those things in my life. That happened this week, right? And over and over again, we start to wonder, what is, what is it that I'm being asked? Again, under this broad idea, this umbrella of loving others well or loving sincerely there's just a couple of themes that sort of pop out to me that feel important to frame for us. One is that there's sort of this family nature. It's interesting about churches, and, and I heard this once, and it's always stayed with me. When we think about the church's family, right? When everybody, somebody says, I'm going to treat you like I treat my own family, right? 
The older I've gotten, this question keeps popping up in my head. Well, how dysfunctional is your family? You know, that used to mean, oh, I'm going to be treated like family. Oh, that's so great. That feels so warm and fuzzy. That feels like such a, a beautiful embrace. And the older I've gotten, I start to think to myself, well, how messed up is your family? I'm not too sure I want to be a part of it. And I've unfortunately lived in the reality of people treating me like they treat their own family. And I'm like, well, I think I, I need to be treated slightly better than you, need to, than you treat your family. Because your family is pretty whack. And yet here we are in the church adopting this family language. And I think the Apostle Paul is, is doing something very specific here. He's saying, I want you to treat each other like you treat your own family because the reality is we don't choose our family, right? You get what you get. You don't get upset. Right? And you have to learn how to live and function inside the relative dysfunction. Right? Somewhere inside of that, right? Hopefully it's not as bad as we're joking about, but it sometimes is. Paul is remembering and reminding us that family, family is messy. You don't just get to leave your family. You can separate yourself and you can draw hard boundaries and you can do all the things that you want, but your mom is still your mom and your dad is still your dad and your brothers are still who they are and... You know, believe me, I get it, right? It's messy business, family. We, however, if we are to live as family, must be intentional. We must be proactive. We must think about how to engage in practical living with people who are different and who are often new and who are not like our families. We need to sift through all of that business as part of what it means to be the body of Christ. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I must be discerning about my relationships and the reality of life in the church and the reality of life in family is that I need to be against the things that break us and for the things that bind us. And sometimes it gets as simple as that, right? When we're thinking about those really hard relationships and we're trying to move on from difficulty and stress and tension, sometimes we need to be mindful that it wasn't all bad. Even if the parts that were good feel very, very small, we need to hold on to the things that are good and to reject the things that were not so good. Are you with me? Have you done this exercise in your lives with people, people that have hurt you and people that are difficult and that are challenging. We need to cling to what is good, cling to the good memories and to whatever good space and time existed there and reject and remove and hate the things that were evil and that were hard. It's part of growth, right? Part of how we move forward in our lives. And if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and if we are aunties and uncles in Christ, then there is a responsibility that we bear toward one another that we have to take on, right? The children of the church are our children. The families of the church are our families. And we have to feel in some way, in appropriate ways, that this is part of my responsibility as part of being the church. I cannot abdicate my responsibility to the other people that I live in the room with week after week after week. I think simply we're bound materially. Verse 13 literally tells us that if we've got money and we've got possessions, give to those in need. And we've done this beautifully, friends. This is such a, a significant part of how I see our church caring for each other is that in times of need, we've given to benevolence some of you have sacrificed your own money and possessions during the height of COVID to help other people who were disadvantaged during that time. And significant, generous 
things happen behind the scenes that we just cannot tell you about, but that happened in reality. So beautiful, beautiful expressions of this kind of material responsibility that we feel for one another is happening in the church as we think about what it means to never be lacking in zeal, but keeping our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We're living out that kind of life. And just to wrap, there's this second piece, this last piece. And if there's anything that I think we need to kind of hold on to when it comes to Christian community and life in church, especially living uh, as family or as a kind of family, it's this second point, is that Christian community needs to be gracious. And again, that sounds so trite. It sounds so Christian greeting card, right? that we could just move past it without thinking. But this is the fundamental of the Christian church and of the Christian life, is living inside of this graciousness, right? Where it says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And if we stop and we think about what is grace, in its simplest terms, is unmerited favor, right? And that, that's grace. That's kind of like a good Christian Bible study definition of, of grace, right? Unmerited favor. Showing favor when favor is not deserved. Maybe. I'm going to show you kindness when kindness is not deserved. I'm going to show you generosity when generosity is not deserved. I'm going to show you love when love is not deserved in every human term. This is supernatural stuff that we're moving into, superhuman capacity that we're talking about here. And we ask the question, who in my life right now is in need of unmerited favor from me? Who is in need of something that I can offer to them that they have not earned or deserved? And maybe the second question is, do I have it within me to offer it to them? This is the language of the living sacrifice. Do I have it within me to offer it to them? And I'll offer this to you too. Sometimes the answer to that question is no. Even if you're the ideal person or the perfectly positioned person. And if there's something that I've learned in recent years is you cannot give what you do not have. Even if you're supposed to have it, sometimes you don't. Are you with me? And that's okay too. Maybe that's why we try to put Jesus first and we're trying to serve joyfully so that when the opportunity comes and I need to be gracious and part of my living sacrifice life starts to get challenging and the sacrificial part of this starts to take place, and the grace-giving needs to be part of my existence, I am prepared to be that person. Are you with me? So that when God calls my number and says, I need you to be a living sacrifice that doesn't crawl off the altar for this other person. And it's not going to be easy, Doug, because Jesus died on the cross for a bunch of people that hated him and put him there. So you might have to step into a role like that where you're going to care for somebody who doesn't want you to care for them, who doesn't stand for what you stand for, who doesn't care what you believe, who might be abjectly opposed to your presence. I might call you into a situation where you have to stand in the room and receive that challenging relationship and respond in graciousness. And you have to ask yourself the question, do you have it within you to do that today? And some days you say, yes, Lord, I think I can. 
I'm willing to try. And you go and try. And we see if the Lord can meet you in that place. And I have to say this. It's okay to draw a boundary. I'm not saying step into the firing line over and over again. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Don't do that. That's not the Christian way either. Where does this power come from, friends? We need to know that we have received a love that does not fail us and that is strong. And it is only out of that love that we can love in the way that Paul is just sort of describing in this story. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16 is a passage that I often use with folks who are feeling like God is far, far away. It says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. And we remind ourselves and others, friends, that the Lord himself, God himself, has engraved our faces and our names on the palms of his hands. And then if a mother can forget, God says, I never forget. And he remembers it all. And we can take comfort in that knowledge. Because we can only love in this way if we have been loved in this way. And so I encourage you to lean deeply into the love of God. To go deep into that well. To care for yourself in that way. And allow God to enter in to care for you in that way. This is difficult, slow work, friends. It's so hard. I'll be honest. This is hard work. It is so difficult. If I'm, I'll just confess it before you. It is one of the hardest things for me to do in my Christian life is to sit and allow God to just love me as I am and to sit in the stillness and what feels like the emptiness of that space and saying, God, I want to go and I want to earn and I want to appease and I want to please and do all the things because that feels right and normal and natural and God says no. I want you to learn that you are loved if you don't do another thing today. And in that stillness, allow that to sink in. Not as a servant, not as a leader, not as a warrior, not as a whatever, but just as a person. Pray together.